The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and a desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to your coaching, so there's always somebody available to answer your questions and to help you adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, the ITL Coaching and Performance website is itlcoaching.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The agents at Blue Pineapple Travel love to help people plan their travel. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Whether you're looking for relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group inside the United States or outside the United States, they are there to match you to the trip for you. Blue Pineapple Travel will help you curate all the travel information out there to create the exact vacation that you want. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by SlayerX, www.slayerx.com. SlayerX is a sports nutrition company that makes products for athletes, team sports, and anyone that trains or works outdoors. SlayerX was founded by an endurance athlete and University of Georgia food scientist who was unhappy with the choices he was offered on course in long course triathlons. He started making his own mixes and now you can enjoy those same mixes. SlayerX offers differing levels of electrolytes in their hydration products and you can get them with or without calories. You can either take their online test at SlayerX.com or you can be tested in their laboratory to determine the exact amount of liquid and electrolytes that you need to be consuming while racing. In addition to hydration products, SlayerX offers fueling products like their product Diesel, which is available with or without the optimum level of caffeine that is scientifically proven to legal enhance performance while limiting GI upset and diuretic impact. If you're looking for alternative gel, try SlayerX's new Spark Plug, a Pop Rocks-like powder that combines the same electrolytes that are in their other products, encapsulated caffeine, and quickly absorbed carbohydrates. It comes in a plastic tube so it can be carried while running and it will work to enhance and fuel your alertness, general happiness, and performance. Remember, tell them that the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast sent you by using the coupon code PLEASANT2019 at checkout on the website and you'll get 10% off anything that you purchase there. That's SlayerX.com, PLEASANT2019. Test, don't guess with SlayerX. Thanks to all of our sponsors for helping us to bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by SlayerX, ITO Coaching and Performance, and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. We have for you today an interview that I'm eager to share. It's with an old friend of mine named Eric Hall. Eric Hall today is a runner and a coach, among other things. We met way back in the summer of 1991 when he and I were both rising seniors in high school. We were at running camp together. We were in the same group at running camp, um, and we ran some together over the course of that week in Asheville, North Carolina. We went out back to our respective rival high schools. We ran against each other a few times that fall, but then we reconnected my freshman year at Georgia Tech when he and I ended up joining the same fraternity. Fast forward several years, and Eric, like Lee Ragsdale, who we interviewed on the podcast only a few months ago, 
is now a part of the Blue Ridge Relay team that I compete in the Blue Ridge Relay with every September. Eric is a podcast listener, which I certainly appreciate, and he was listening about a month or so ago when Patrick and I happened to mention about how GPS watches tend to be a little bit more inaccurate when you're on a trail. And either Patrick or I said something to the effect of, well, there's cloud cover sometimes in the winter, and there's also the trees when you're on the trails, and so that tends to make your GPS more inaccurate. Eric reached out to me and said, you're right that on the trail, the GPS tends to be inaccurate, but you're wrong about the reason why. Now, in the time between Eric finishing Georgia Tech as a mechanical engineer, and now he spent some time in the Navy, and specifically he was on a submarine. When he was on that submarine, as you'll hear him describe, he had to be pretty sure about where they were located since they were, of course, underwater. And in order to do that, they used GPS. But in order to translate the data they got from the satellites into information that would help them understand where they were located and would inform their decisions about their headings, they needed to understand GPS in a much deeper and more intricate way than most of us understand it. And that's what he's going to be sharing with us today. Quick spoiler alert, in case you think that the overall thrust of this podcast today is going to be that GPS is bad and you surely shouldn't be using it. Eric is going to say at the end, GPS is a really good tool. And in fact, it's great that we can strap it on our wrists and use it to help us glean information about the runs that we've just done. However, he thinks that in order to really use GPS wisely, you need to understand its shortcomings. Um, and so today he's going to be talking a lot about the science behind GPS and, of course, the, the shortcomings that, that are therein. So without further ado, let's hear our interview with Eric Hall. Eric Hall, <laughs> welcome to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, George. Um, I've listened to your podcast for a while, but uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to be on the other side today. <laughs> well, wait till you listen to yourself on the podcast. I'll be interested in your impression of when you hear yourself on tape for the first time. It's definitely a surreal experience. It won't be the first, and I already know I'll be uh, <laughs> a little bit uh, caught off guard. Right on, right on. Well, Eric, you are a runner, you're a coach, and we brought you on because you have a level of expertise and understanding of GPS uh, that most of us don't have. But um, let's uh, let's start by talking about your running background. How long you've been running? When did you start running? Et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so I started running. I guess the end of middle school. Uh, I was kind of spinning down a swimming and soccer career, and my dad got me into the Peachtree Road Race. Hmm. Um, so I probably ran three or four times and then went out and ran my first Peachtree road race with my dad. Mm -hmm. And I, I was, I was absolutely smitten. Hmm. I, I loved it. And, uh, I find it funny now running races. It, it was so normal back then to me because the only race I ran every year for three years was the Peachtree road race, I think. Mm -hmm. And the only road race, non-school race. And at the end of the race, you know, the last probably mile and a half, um, yelling t-shirt, cold beer, t-shirt, <laughs> cold beer as a, as a middle schooler, you know? <laughs> right on. Right on. So, so, so yeah, so I, I kind of got hooked then and then, you know, high school, I got into cross country. I was still attempting to play soccer until my high school cross country coach said, you know, you really should think about running track. 
Hmm. Um, and then my high school soccer coach said the same thing, and it was kind of like, <laughs> okay, the writing <laughs> on the wall is very clear. Uh, so, so yeah, I went full time running cross country track, you know, running over the summer, my sophomore year in high school. And I've pretty much, I've been fairly consistent with that since then. You know, I've had a couple of years where it just didn't fit into my life Mm -hmm. or I got into cycling for a little while in college, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, you know, that, that was my start Mm -hmm. and, you know, all the way up to, to now, um, now I've, I've kind of transitioned as most runners do runners do into longer distances. And, um, I'm pretty much, uh, exclusively an ultra runner. I'll throw a 5k in there every once in a while. But, you know, uh, 2018, we got together and ran that Blue Ridge Relay with mm-hmm. our, with our friends from college. And the 19, the Run for Peyton 10 by 5K, what a, what a crazy and fun format. Mm-hmm. And then the Blue Ridge Relay again. Um, my daughter has gotten into this. And so my six, 15 at the time and now 16, we run together. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did the 10 by 5K. And then she and I did the Doggettville 12-hour run. Um, she put in 50 miles that day. Ooh. Um, and you know, that, that's just sort of kicked off this, you know, really uh, symbiotic relationship between the two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much every run except for the BRR lately, ultra wise, you know, I'm her, I'm her running partner. I'm out there to, to help her support her, um, get her ultra running career off. Um, and, uh, yeah. So culminated this year, you know, I, I just told you tomorrow, we're going out to run the Southern Tour Ultra in Wilmington, and we're doing the 50 miler, uh, 10 or sorry, five 10 mile loops. Mm-hmm. That's a that'll be an interesting format for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, we're going to run the Run for Peyton 10 by 5K. Uh, unfortunately, not with you, because yeah. you'll be doing bigger and better things. <laughs> but we're going to do that again, and then um, really hoping to get us back together for the Blue Ridge Relay at the end of the year. So right on. So definitely. yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Very cool, very cool, and uh, and you know, good luck. We should say that really at the outset uh, on the uh, the Southern Tour Ultra that you're doing this weekend, uh, you and your daughter. Um, so, in running with her, I think it's great, by the way, and very poetic that that you know your dad passed it to you, and then now you're passing it to your daughter. But in running with her, I know you've done some coaching. Is that kind of how you got into coaching, or were you were you coaching before that? So, I was really lucky in high school to have three absolutely phenomenal coaches Mm -hmm. and I'll go ahead and throw a shout out to Luke Prescott. He was my high school coach Mm -hmm. cross country and track and Leanne case. uh, She was actually a runner for Walton high school. She Mm -hmm. had the the state record in the mile for a while. She came over Mm -hmm. and coached with uh, coach Prescott. So through high school, I had a couple of really, really great coaches and uh, coach Prescott, he taught me how to plan and execute. And it, it was, it was interesting coming from just, you know, going out and running with my dad who really had no clue what he was doing. And he would admit that too, uh, to actually having a plan and working through that in the season from a breakdown to a build up to a peaking, you know, at the right time and then starting that cycle all over. Mm-hmm. Um, and his method of execution was phenomenal. And then coach case, uh, she taught me how to enjoy it, um, mm-hmm. and enjoy it alongside the runners. Uh, mm-hmm. so she was still, fairly uh, accomplished and she would run with uh, the boys and the girls out there and she would just mm-hmm. enjoy with us. And then on top of that, um, coach Lee Fiddler. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting, uh, 
you know, Andy, yourself, myself, I, I think there was a couple others, you know, we would, we would go there once a week down to Atlanta once a week and get coached by coach Fiddler. And I had no idea who the guy was. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just a guy that someone said, Hey, he can help you, you know, get faster. Um, and what I learned from him was like really how to run and how to enjoy it while you're out there and then how to self coach. Cause he didn't call us every day. We saw him once a week, once every two weeks and he gave us a plan and we had to go out and do it ourselves. Um, but that planted a seed, those three people, uh, coach Prescott case and definitely coach Fiddler planted a seed in me that I just love coaching. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my kids were really big into soccer and I, I, got into soccer coaching mm-hmm. um and then uh grace transitioned out of soccer and i was like well i need to find something else to do and her high school cross country and track coach was on a shoestring budget and she had no you know consistent help and so i started researching and trying to figure it out and i said hey i think i can help you and i'm a you know me i'm i'm a data guy i'm a engineer i'm a process oriented person so i went and found as much information as i could dug into it and started trying that stuff out and it's it it, it's really awesome very cool i really really enjoy it yeah very cool very cool that that sort of coaching bug i mean i can definitely appreciate that i feel like when i when i first um when I first decided I wanted to be a coach or when I first started thinking I wanted to be a coach is when I was a counselor at running camp, as a matter of fact. Um, and, and the way I ended up following is that I became a teacher and a coach. Um, and th- those things always kind of went very much hand in hand for me. But, but you, didn't, you didn't become a teacher. I know that you went to Georgia Tech like I did. You and I knew each other at Georgia Tech, of course. And, then, um, and you became an engineer. Um, so how did you scratch that coaching itch for between, I guess, between the time that you worked with Luke Prescott and Leanne Case and Lee Fiddler, and and the time you started coaching your your daughter's soccer and cross country teams, like thirty years later. It's a good question. So, <laughs> you, you know, I, I, well, I got a real degree from Georgia Tech, so you know, <laughs> you already mentioned. <laughs> no, so I, my degree was mechanical engineering, right. and the the long story made really short i found that that was a really it looked like a really boring profession to me a lot of the stuff in mechanical engineering was manufacturing oriented that's that's my perception it's not the reality that was my perception so i went into the navy Mm -hmm. and uh, initially you know my first maybe year two years of being in the navy i'm just in a receive only mode i'm i'm just getting information forced down my throat Mm -hmm. but the the field I went into in the Navy the service was the nuclear submarine service. And one thing that is um, essential in that career path is uh, training your replacement constantly. So you're only in a, in a position for two, maybe three years. Hmm. So you're always training the person following you hmm. and it, it, they aren't actually going to take over your position. They're going to take over a position similar to yours in some other command, but that is the ethos. That's one of our huge things. So that's how I kind of scratched that itch in that interim between high school and now, at least in, in, in that part of my career was training others. And I just, what I found was, and what, what people have said to me is I'm very good at coming up with um, analogies that fit the person. So if, if, if the complex subject doesn't make sense to them, I can break it down to its pieces 
and talk about it in a, in a language they understand. Um, and that's something I really strive with my runners because I don't want to just tell them, okay, we're doing a tempo run today. You're going to do, you know, two one mile tempos you're going to run at this pace and you're going to take a two minute break in the middle. Go. Mm -hmm. I want them to know what tempo means. I want them to know where those numbers came from. I want them to know the purpose of the, of the exercise. And again, you're going back to that Lee Fiddler, like he was telling us why, why we were doing what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And, and I learned that in the Navy, and I try to try to carry that forward to these runners. So. Right on. Very good. You know, I, I've, I, I've often said, and I say this to the, the pre-service teachers that I work with now, that I feel like there's a lot of reasons that good teachers are good, but the one thing that all bad teachers have in common is that they've forgotten what it's like to be a student. Um, and I think it's interesting, and I think it's very telling, actually, um, that, that you say, well, what worked for me when I worked with Lee Fiddler, when I worked with Luke Prescott, when I worked with Leon Case was this and this and this. And so ergo, that's what I do now. Um, you know, you haven't forgotten what it's like to be that new runner. You haven't forgotten what it's like to be a student. Um, and you're applying that understanding to, to working with your athletes today. Um, speaks highly of you, Eric. I'm, pay, I'm paying you a compliment. I don't, I don't give you compliments very often, but <laughs> yeah, first, first lie you've told today. So, no, you, uh, it is, it's a really easy trap to fall into that one size fits all, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what I find is, you know, I have, it's a really small school. It's a small private school that I, that I coach at and our distance team, we're doing indoor track right now. And I've got six runners I'm coaching, which is phenomenal because you can be very intentional and very, you know, uh, personal based with your coaching. Sure. But I'm coaching my 16 year old daughter who you would think that, we would be, well, in many ways we are very similar and we do communicate well, but that's a different dynamic mm -hmm. than the 17 year old senior male who I just tell him what to do and he does it. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he really has like blind faith in what I'm telling him to do. Mm -hmm. He wants to understand it, but he just believes that it's going to work. Mm -hmm. Those two individuals have to be coached totally differently and offhand comments, the way you run with them, how you you know, characterize or the words you use to, to describe the, what you're trying to get out of this event, this exercise, this session, it, it can be, to, it can be received totally differently. And that's a huge point. And I'm, yeah, it's good to hear you kind of saying that in your own words and, and that, and that you're out there telling other people the same thing. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. 100%. 100%. So, so you went into the Navy working on a nuclear submarine there, and that, that gave you an understanding, I think, of, of technology that, that a lot of us who are coaches don't necessarily have. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so just the, the field I went into is highly technical, um, lots of engineering uh, background and understanding but it, it wasn't geared towards just engineers. We had guys that were out there that were music majors. Hmm. Um, but, but an understanding and a, a willingness to learn about technology was essential. Um, and the, if you think about it, you know, you're on a submarine, most of the time you're underwater and, but you still have to know where you are. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it's essential to know where you are. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we, we don't ground the submarine on the bottom or we don't, surface under something or, right. or we don't get, you know, cross some line somewhere. So 
one of the pieces of technology we used in that was um, the global positioning system or GPS. Mm-hmm. And we, we relied on it often. I wouldn't say heavily or only. We had our own, you know, we had other systems that we could use, uh, especially when, when submerged. But the nice thing about GPS is as soon as you've got a, a, a sensor out of the water or the ship is on the surface and you can get that GPS signal, it's fairly uh, consistent and uh, high quality data that you can turn into information to figure out where you are. And you can even, and we use that to condition the systems that we use underwater. So we use that as an input to the systems we use underwater to make them more accurate when we're submerged. Um, with that though, you've got to understand that it's just data. And I think that's going to be a big part of our conversation, the difference between data and information Mm -hmm. and what makes data into information. Um, but yeah, I learned a good bit about the technology itself, its strengths and limitations, uh, both from the navigation standpoint and also from how we utilized our weaponry, Mm -hmm. um, how it utilized the GPS system. Um, so yeah, it was in, it, like I said, you know, in, in some of the areas of the world we work in, it's it's very important to have that that uh, that tool out there. For sure, for sure. So let's start with actually what you just mentioned because that stood out to me when you when you said it. Data versus information. Um, how do you how do you draw the line between those two? How do you make that distinction? So I'll start with an example from the submarine perspective to try to you know take this really serious topic of a submarine out there operating and then cool. and explain how we took data and information. So say we're, we're at periscope depth. So we just have the periscope out of the water. The rest of the submarines are under the water. And let's just say we're somewhere where we don't want to be seen. And we have say an area we have to stay in. So there's imaginary lines out there in the ocean and we can't cross them. Mm-hmm. Well, we receive a GPS point, you know, and, and, and we're not receiving this constantly. You know, there is some, there is a, a, a small amount of update time. There's, you know, your GPS receiver has to in, grab the data and then say, okay, here's here's what these satellites are telling me. So there's a little delay, and we we treat those like you know the Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. So we 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 get a, a point and we plot that on the map. Literally, in, in my time, we physically plotted that on a on a paper plot. And we instantly looked at how high quality that data was because we would receive one, the position and two, what they call a figure of merit. And usually one to three was useful. Three was the worst and one was the best. Um, And if we got a figure of merit one and we're consistently getting that, um, we would assume we're pretty close to that point on the, on the plot. However, if the data starts to, drift if the data is not as high quality as if we don't believe it's as high quality we're going to assume that we're not right on that dot and we're going to plot a bigger circle around that dot so that makes sense so if if, if the data seems really high quality we have a small circle and we say we are inside that circle somewhere Mm -hmm. but as the data stops coming in so you know so high quality we just make that circle bigger okay so so when you think about it from the consumer's perspective, you know, the captain or the officer of the deck driving the ship, when he comes over to the plot, the data is the point that GPS gave me. Mm-hmm. The information I'm supplying to him is we're anywhere inside this circle. Okay. 
and here the circle's really small, and then here the circle's really big. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, over time, you can draw a line between those different circles you've drawn, and you can start figuring out, okay, this is the direction we're heading. This is the 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 drift of the ocean is pushing us in this direction, even though we're heading this direction. And you can start building a picture of where you're actually going. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that's what I, that's the first example I give, you know, the difference between data, what GPS is telling me and information that I can actually transmit to somebody. I, I have, I have done something to that data to say, this is reality, quote unquote, reality captain. So let me let me make sure I understand because I, and, I'm, and I think I'm going to like skip a couple steps ahead here, but I think that's okay. Sure. That sure. you like when you were on the submarine, it was your job to actually convert the data directly into information. You actually took the raw GPS data and you converted those data into into okay, this is where we are right now. On like the GPS system in my car or the GPS on my Garmin watch. My watch does both the data gathering and the transformation to information, does it not? Or does it? Yes, that is, yeah, and that's an excellent example of that translation. And 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 the the interesting thing is, in my example, I had to understand how GPS worked, the quality of the data coming in to provide a picture, mm -hmm. the, the information to somebody else. In your example, in the car. You know, the, the car is a great example um, because you'll notice when you when you use your GPS in the car, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting to me, we just synonymously say GPS. You know, you're calling up an app on your phone and using that for navigation, but that's GPS. Mm -hmm. But GPS is really just the data coming in. Mm -hmm. But you'll know that your car never leaves the road. Mm -hmm. In fact, your car is always on the correct side of the road. <laughs> um, and and I've, I've used this example with people in the past. If if you have told your Google Maps you want to go to somewhere and it tells you to get off at exit 13, but you pass that exit, if you watch closely, your car will still drive up the exit right. initially. Right. And then once, the, once Google Maps realizes that the data doesn't match the information it's showing, it'll snap you back to the interstate. Right. And it takes, so that's a, an it, and it, takes where, it a minute. It, ta it, it takes a couple oh, seconds. It'll say oh, yeah. rerouting, you know, and yeah. Yeah, but definitely right. that. And that right there shows you that Google Maps is doing a translation of the data coming in from the satellite into some information to help you out. Mm -hmm. And it's actually what I would call it is it's getting ahead of the problem. Mm -hmm. It's starting to assume you did what it told you to do mm -hmm. and and go ahead and take you up the exit ramp because it wants to. And and it's because of and I spoke of this earlier, there's some delay. Mm -hmm. There's delay in that data being fed into your phone or your car's GPS system and then presenting that to you. So what Google Maps will do is get ahead and assume you've done what it said and mm -hmm. then present that to you as reality mm -hmm. when, in fact, it's not. Hmm. So, and that's, that's something that a lot of people, you know, they see it happen, they kind of take it for granted, and they just kind of move on, right? Okay, well, it caught up. Mm -hmm. It didn't really catch up. It got ahead, and now it's... It's still behind, but it's trying to show you where you're going. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Does that kind of answer your question there? It totally does. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting to think about, cause I think all of us have seen that before, right? That, that your car on your GPS or on your Google map starts taking the exit, even though you're not taking the exit or vice versa. Right. Um, right. And then, and then right. if, if, if I go someplace that like Google maps hasn't updated yet and I like take an exit or I like, get in the express lane or something, it goes completely insane. Like it just, it can't figure out exactly where I am because the data it's getting from the GPS isn't matching it's information like like it can't translate the can't can't translate the data into the information because it doesn't have the right translator because it doesn't have the right map. Do you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Um, and so exactly. so yeah yeah. So I think that's interesting to consider. But I, I think one of the interesting things too there is is you talk about how it's kind of like in front of it, yes, if you will. It's like making up for the fact that there's a, there's a delay by sort of being out in front of you, if you will, like predicting where you're gonna go, if you will. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. And talk about like how what what our Garmin watches do with that because do, do our Garmin watches when we run do the same thing? So I'll first say I really have a I have a very good understanding of how this was done on the submarine. Mm-hmm. So I like to start there. Okay. And I believe based on my understanding, this is what your Garmin watch is doing. Okay. So one thing we would always do on the submarine is every time we plotted a dot, we'd say that's where we were right? Mm-hmm. We already knew we were past that. Mm-hmm. And then we draw an arrow off of that dot. Mm-hmm. And that was called uh, a DR or a dead reckon. Mm-hmm. And we're basically saying, we're telling the captain, we're inside, we were inside this circle, and we were going in this direction. So we're probably somewhere along this line. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly what Google Maps is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's adding a layer, though. Mm-hmm. It's adding the layer of here's the road. And right. I'm not going to show this person's car off the road. So right. it's doing a dead reckon based on where the road is and based on what I've told this person to do. Right. When you take that to your watch, I think it's a much simpler example, more like the submarine example I've given you, mm-hmm. where when you're running along, if you're running in a straight line on a straight road that has no ups and downs on it, Garmin is going to look pretty darn accurate. Right. <laughs> Because it's just projecting out in front of you where you're going to be. Because mm-hmm. it's receiving that data delayed. It's projecting just a little bit out and it's saying this is where you are. Mm-hmm. But when we start to turn and go up and down, it's going to be off a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all seen this, you know, at the end of a run, you go, I know that was a five mile run and you've got four and a half or mm-hmm. you've got 5.3. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think about, what the watch has to deal with um, that even in the car example, it doesn't have to deal with, you know, the watch is on your arm. So if the watch is getting a point every one second and your arm swing is say three seconds long, one of those points, your arm is kind of in lockstep with you. One of those points, your arm is coming forward, actually going faster than you are. And one of those points, your arm is behind you going slower than you are. Hmm. So, the Garmin has to figure that all out and average out all those differences and then say, okay, this is where we think they are. And they, they use the algorithms for all of that mm-hmm. to try to smooth the data mm-hmm. and, and make it, make it realistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when we, when we go running, you know, everybody's seen this, you've got the watch watcher. That's what I call my runners that keep looking at their watch. <laughs> yeah. And the, the watch watcher will look down and they'll see 545 and then they'll stop looking They'll run a few more steps. They'll look down and they'll see 615. And they'll look down and they'll see 605. Mm-hmm. You know, and 
they're getting upset because it's not accurate. Mm-hmm. And what they're not taking into account is all those, the accuracy of the satellite information that's coming to their watch, where their arm swing is, whether they're on a turn, uh, whether they're on a hill going up or down, or you know, did they actually slow down and speed up? You know, we're not perfect. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and the Garmin's trying to take all of that and use its algorithms to plot not only where you are, where you were, but where you're going. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get that quote-unquote real-time information. Mm-hmm. I think that, that idea that, that – okay, so first of all, two thoughts right there. One is that the way that you just portrayed that, that okay, so your arm is swinging all over the place and moving at different speeds relative to how fast your body's moving. So you have that. Um, you have the fact that it's only getting like one per second and, and that over the course of that second, your arm can be in all sorts of different places. Um, and then the fact that it's not only looking at where you've been, but also where you're going and it's trying to predict where you're going and it uses that as part of folding in. So, so two thoughts. One is that, that holy crap, that's a lot of data that's trying to be in processed on your wrist. Do you know what I mean? Um, that's, it it just seems like a lot. And I, and I think I'm, I'm a little bit blown away by it the way that, that, um, you're always blown away by some kind of impressive piece of technology the first time that you really understand or are exposed to the way that it actually works. So that seems almost magical that that it's, it's able to even give us any information (laughs) given, given the challenge that you just described. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the other thing that, that, that stands out to me is this idea of of the delay, and I, and I think I'm kind of coming back to this because, like you said, we've all been on those runs and we've all uploaded them to Strava where you know that loop was five miles and and you go and upload it and it's four point seven, or you run like you run the New York City Marathon, or you run like the Chicago Marathon. You know they're not making those marathons long. You know you know those marathons aren't twenty five and a half miles long, <laughs> and 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 yet you finish the race and and. And your GPS will say, you know, 26.6 miles or something like that, right? Um, and so right. y- y- you know they're not, you know, you know they're not making that course extra long. Um, and, and you can say it's because I was running around, you know, wide around the curves and, and all that sort of thing. But, but you know, a lot of that is just sort of data inaccuracy because that delay, it like gets out in front of itself and then has to correct and, and it just isn't quite right. So, yeah, that, that, that delay... Um, that that you're describing and it having to correct itself so many times throughout the course of a run. Um, yeah, I find that striking. What kicked off this conversation with us was your, your end of the year wrap up with Patrick and Patrick was talking about, I think the two of you were talking about GPS accuracy in the woods and Mm -hmm. Patrick mentioned the, his, uh, his, his, his segment kill or his attempt at the segment kill, right? The segment hunt. (laughs) And, his failed it, attempt. It reminded yes. me of <laughs> his failed attempt. Yeah, it reminded me of three things that I've seen in Strava, and I am I am a believer in Strava, and I hope we come back to this at the end. I'm a believer in that for okay. many reasons, mm-hmm. and, and GPS in 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 in, in itself. So I'm a huge believer in it, and I have a huge respect for it. But I have seen these three things happen. I run with somebody. We have the exact same watch. We run the exact same path. We don't turn our watches on or off at different times. Neither one of us is on auto pause. We get done. We've run next to each other the whole time. You know, no one's run off the trail or anything. I've got 4.8. He's got Mm 5.1. And I think everybody has seen that in Strava. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's some inherent difference in what happened. Was his arm swing different? Does he swing his arm out 
more than I do? Am I more of a locomotive swing? And he's, he's got like some outswing. Were we in the woods and his breadcrumbs were just dropping at different points, mm-hmm. you know, and when they added all the differences up, I got 4.8 and he got 5.1. But I think everybody's seen that. We can kind of rationalize that one. Mm-hmm. Another one, though, I go for a run with Grace. She doesn't bring her watch. I share that run with her. I get 5.1. She gets 5.4. And I can show this to somebody and they, they're like, no, you didn't share that with me. I'm like, yeah, I did. So there is a algorithm going on. There's something going on in Strava where it's taking the data coming from your watch that your watch is already converted into information. And I don't know if it's taking the smoothed information or it's taking the raw data from your watch and it's building its own picture, its own information. Hmm. Um, and then the, la- the latest one, and this just happened, and I, I cannot for the life of me figure this out. Grace goes on a seven-mile run, three and a half out and back. Mm-hmm. She loads it. She, her watch automatically uploads it to Garmin Connect. Garmin Connect sends it up to Strava. Garmin Connect says 7.1 miles. Strava says three. <laughs> <laughs> and for the life of me, I, I can't figure that out. Maybe someone can explain that to me, but there's something different in the way even two programs are looking at the information and presenting it. Hmm. And I think it's inherent in the difference in the algorithms that are working behind the screens or mm-hmm. behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I started looking at this and I think I mentioned this to you and that kicked off a little bit of this conversation was I always go back to my runners in track season or in cross country season when we go to the track and sometimes it's have to take away their watches. Mm-hmm. Because I've had a runner at the end of a, a mile. You know, uh, she ran the mile. She was on pace to break her the, the school record. She was on pace to break her obvious, obvious record. And she finished the race, and I said to her, your third lap was slow. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, it wasn't. My watch said I was running 545 pace. Mm-hmm. And I said, your third lap was two seconds slower than your first second and fourth laps Mm -hmm. and i said that is the lap i want you to put more time into you like we we had been talking about put more time into this wrong wording we have been talking about running harder on the third lap Mm -hmm. well what happens you know especially on the track 50 percent of the track is a turn Mm -hmm. if you look at your watch at the wrong time and i would say if you look at your watch at any time on the track it's going to give you wonky data Mm -hmm. because you're doing this nice smooth curve and the Garmin's trying to figure out where the next point's going, where the next dot is going to be, the breadcrumb. And it's going to give you some information, and you're going to look down. And she honestly thought she was running PR pace mm-hmm. because her watch told her she was. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking at the clock, and I'm like, you are slow. Mm-hmm. So so that's a that's an example of where that, that data to information is – something you have to have a healthy respect for and understand that's not reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what, what we talked about, what this turned into was I said something to somebody, I think it was you about I'm waiting for Garmin to come out with a track mode mm-hmm. and the company Coros did, mm-hmm. they did come out with a track mode and we could probably talk for an entire episode on how they do that and what it looks like and how you have to have a really healthy respect for how that works. Um, or you're going to get really wonky data still. Mm-hmm. But that's an indication that someone's figured this out and they started to try to build a solution for it. And I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. 
So, so, so to be clear, then with like Coros's new track mode, or because I know that 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 other GPS watches have like a trail running mode or something like that, and so so Coros is not necessarily when they have when you put it in track mode, it's still going to be gathering the raw data from the satellites the way that it always does. But when you use track mode, it it changes the algorithm that it uses to to translate that data into information for you. Is that right? What it looks like it's doing, I haven't really gotten to dig into it, but I've looked at a couple other people's experiences with it. And what it looks like it's doing is it's creating a Google map track. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it is forcing you to stay in that lane. It mm-hmm. lets you choose the lane. Mm-hmm. And once it figures out kind of the orientation of the track, mm-hmm. it says, okay, you're in this lane. So wherever the GPS point, re- wherever the GPS point says you are in lane two, three, because if you watch it, you know, if you go run on a track now, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to be in lane one through three. Right. If you're running in lane one, you, you're going to be in the infield sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's going to take every one of those points and use its algorithm to force it onto lane one. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I don't know how it exactly accounts for that, but that's that's the way Coros is doing it. Because if you go back and you look at your run after the fact, you're on the track. Mm-hmm. And just like the Google Maps example, right. when you leave the track, it doesn't notice. Right. It will, you know, I saw the one where the guy left the track at the beginning of the turn. It took him three quarters of the way through the turn, and then it started trying to figure out where he was. And his path goes three quarters of the way around the turn, and then it starts catching up to where he was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's an there's an algorithm behind the scenes trying to figure out what's going on, and I think that's a really interesting way to deal with you know that problem of running on the track with a GPS too. watch. I do too. So yeah, uh, go ahead. Well, I, people have talked about wearing their watch on their left arm versus their right arm because well, your your left arm is on the inside of the track, so and that's that's the line that's measured on the inside edge of the track. Mm-hmm. I'm left-handed, so my watch is always on my right arm. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd never even thought of that. But even with my watch on my right arm, I'd say a third of those points plot inside the infield. So it's a really interesting example. And I think it's cool that someone's trying to figure it out. So, so but if, regardless, the, the, the inaccuracies are always going to cause that not to work out exactly the way you want it to. Right. So, so effectively what Coros is doing is the same thing like you just said that Google Maps does, is that when it's plotting your next spot, when it's predicting where you're going to go during that delay, it's, it's, use, it's presuming you're going to be staying on the track. It's presuming just like your car is going to be staying on the road, right? It, it kind of has, exactly. a, it has a map of the track and it just says you're going to stay on the track. Um, I think the real exactly. genius. The, I think the real genius of it is, it is that it must. I assume that it must like build a map of the track during your first lap, right? Or during your first couple of laps, it must actually like build that map from scratch in order to be able to force you then onto that map, right? That's what I don't know. I don't know if there there may be another algorithm in there that says, okay, you're in this point in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go look at that. I'm going to see what that track looks like. And then I'm going to create a loop that matches that track. I mean, that's mm-hmm. possible. That, that is entirely possible. Mm-hmm. Um, technology today will allow that, you know, facial recognition. If it can do that, it can do a track recognition. Hmm. Um, because, and the reason why I say that, so this is the interesting thing. When you use Google maps, if your car is never going to leave the road and 
I find that interesting, even in satellite mode, mm-hmm. because uh, a common misconception, a misunderstanding, and the, the two articles that I read about the Coros watch both addressed this, or they, did, they didn't address it, they noticed it. Even when the Coros watch built the little track and said, you're on this, they noted that the track was skewed to the actual track on the Earth. And when they tested other, so it didn't line up perfectly with the picture that Google Maps showed them or Google Earth showed them or Garmin's mapping software showed them or whatever. And, and they, they said it was similar to when you run with any watch, you know, they, they did comparisons. Yeah. It's obvious I'm doing a loop, but that loop isn't mapped perfectly on the track. And Mm -hmm. I don't think either one of the articles I read understood the fact of the matter that the satellite that took that picture of the earth was not perfectly over that track. Mm -hmm. It was off to the side somewhat. So you get a skewed picture. So the pictures you look at on Google earth are not like the pictures you take at home where the object is 20 feet away from you and everything is planar. It's, it's got a skewed view that it's taking from its position in orbit Mm. And it's trying to build the best picture it can over multiple pictures. But to assume that your GPS dot's going to plot in lane one every time you run around the track is kind of, I mean, that's that's not going to happen. That's just not going to be reality when you run around a track. Mm-hmm. But Coros has somehow figured out how to say, this is a track. These are the dimensions of that track. And you're going to stay in this lane the whole time you run. And the the beauty of that is, in my mind, if you just leave it, I think it has two different modes. Like one is like track mode where it's assuming every time you pass a certain point, you did a 400. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Or you can, you can, one of the guys that did this study, he was lapping himself every time he came around. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So he was actually hitting the lap button every time he came around. So chorus can mm-hmm. do that automatically mm-hmm. or you can do that yourself. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing was the two runners got two totally different, answers to the, to the information out of that. The mm-hmm. one, every run, every lap was a 400. Every mm-hmm. lap was exactly a 400 because Chorus was telling him this is a 400. The other one, he's hitting his lap every time he crosses the start finish line mm-hmm. and he's getting 0. 0.24, 0. 0.26, mm-hmm. 0. 0.25, 0. 0.24, 0. 0.26, mm-hmm. 0.25. And I think that, you know, shows that limitation. Mm-hmm. It shows the, the Google mappishness of Chorus's solution. It's saying, I know you're close to this. You're, you're, you told me you're in lane one, so I'm going to assume you pass this point when I get this breadcrumb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so, so okay, so so I want to underline something you said just a few minutes ago, just to kind of make sure and, and to wrap up the track talk, and then I'm going to segue into a question about trails here. Um, yeah. So so. You mentioned a few minutes ago, and it's funny, we're talking about this track mode and everything, and we're talking about how difficult it is for your GPS to figure out you're on a track. And I think for us, it's almost like we want our – we think because it's easy for us, it should be easy for our GPS. Like it's easy for us when we're running on a track to know exactly where we are and exactly how far we've run because you're on this big marked track, right? And so we think it should be easy for our GPS too. But it's actually particularly hard for the GPS to determine or your GPS watch to actually translate that information or data into information. 
um, when you're on a trap because like you said, you're turning 50% of the time. And so if it's plotting points, predicting where you're going to be, and you're constantly, or at least half of the time, you're not where it's predicting you're going to be, that's going to lead to a lot of error. And so I dare say there are very few runs I do where I'm turning 50% of the time. Um, and so no wonder it's so inaccurate on the track. Am I, am I kind of ca- characterizing that correctly? Is that the reason why it's so off on the track? Cause you're turning so much. I absolutely love the way you said that. Mm-hmm. It, and it's very hard for us. And, and the way you said it is perfect. It's hard for us to understand why that's a difficult problem for us to solve because it's so easy for ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we run on a track during cross country season intentionally because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's exactly 400 meters. Mm-hmm. I know what my pace is going to be, you know, when I come across, or what my pace was mm-hmm. when I come across the line. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the way you said that was beautiful, that mm-hmm. it seems like such a simple problem, but 50% of the time you're turning. And I think that's why Koros and others are going to follow. They're going to say, oh, we got an algorithm for that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, we can, we can draw that track. But they're never going to get rid of the fact that GPS isn't always going to plot in lane one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the... The the government puts out, you know, I think it's a 2.3, what is it, 2.3, it's either feet or meters of, it's 2.3 feet. So the way GPS works, just a quick, just side note, you're getting the distance from you to a satellite that's up in the orbit mm-hmm. and four, you need four. And, and your watch is saying, I'm exactly this many feet from this satellite up in space. Mm-hmm. The error for each of those measurements is, is 2.3 feet or less 95% of the time. Mm-hmm. That draws a pretty big circle on the Earth mm-hmm. when you're a person. Mm-hmm. And that circle encompasses lanes one through three in the infield. Mm-hmm. So at its highest accuracy, GPS is going to plot you all over the place. Mm-hmm. But Chorus and others are going to try to build that algorithm that filters that as best it can. It's yeah, and again, that kind of circles back around to what I was saying before. It's it's kind of actually incredible um, in term. I mean, if you really sort of back out and think of the technology, it's incredible that that a satellite that is how many miles would it be away from you at the time? You know, four satellites that 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 are, that are you know a hundred miles away from you, uh, circling above the Earth, can actually locate where you are on the Earth within two point three feet, ninety five percent of the time. That's actually pretty incredible. <laughs> Um, but, 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 but if you're, but if you're relying on those satellites to tell you where you are within 2.3 feet, 95% of the time, as opposed to just looking on the ground when you're running around the track, like your athlete was, <laughs> that's probably not the right choice. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> right. You know, you, you started this by asking my, you know, our history and part of our history, our generation's history, Right. Mm-hmm. is that we didn't have GPS. Right on. GPS existed, but we certainly weren't wearing, wearing it on our wrists. Mm-hmm. So when we went and did a track workout, it was the coach and a stopwatch. Mm-hmm. And the one, here's, you know, I, I like to deal in facts, especially when you're on the track. Time is a fact. Distance is a fact on the track. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be really precise, don't even try to measure your pace with your GPS watch, do the math. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I ran a one thirty four hundred. That's a six minute mile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I ran a one fifty four hundred. You know, that's a five minute mile, you know, so 
sorry, 115, I think so, 150. So the, the key there is on the track, it's such a difficult problem for your watch. Just mm-hmm. do the math. Mm-hmm. Use the facts. Yeah. Now, since, 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 we're, since we're swearing allegiance to facts here, we probably should say 75 seconds per 400 is a 5-minute 1,600, whereas a mile would be, you know, 1,608 meters. But, but you know, like I said, just for the sake of precision <laughs> and accuracy here. <laughs> because, I cheated I, you. You're nine meters. That's right. I, but but I, I, I could already, I could already feel the tweet, dude. I could already feel somebody I, I appreciate making it. that comment on 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 Instagram here. But all right, so 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 two, I really appreciate that. Two 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 more questions. Two more questions. Cause I know that you got a fifty miler that you got to go to here. But so so two yep, more questions. Yep. Um, and and they all kind of line up here. And and in fact, this question. So so listeners will get the opportunity to kind of answer this question in their own heads as I ask it, because because I think I kind of have pieced together all the various things you've described in order to get a sense of this. But another thing that kind of started this conversation is that um, I think Patrick and I, when we were having a conversation, and we've definitely had this conversation before, and I've had this conversation with other people. We're talking about how well your GPS is less accurate when you're running on a trail because there's the tree cover, and then it's a cloudy day and stuff like that. And and in fact, whether it's cloudy and whether there's a bunch of trees um, doesn't really influence whether uh, your GPS is accurate or not. Is that right? I think it has less of an influence than people believe it does. Mm-hmm. And and I'll use this example. Those four satellites that you're, you're relying on, um, one of them is always going to be looking through trees, unless you're out in the desert. You know, one of them is going to be looking through trees, maybe two of them, and your satellite hopping at certain times from one satellite to the next. But when, when you go into the woods, I don't think that the accuracy of those GPS breadcrumbs is so far different than the accuracy of the ones you get on the road. Mm-hmm. That I just don't believe that. I don't believe a, a tree limb or a or a leaf or or whatnot is going to do that. What I do believe is. When you layer the inherent inaccuracy of GPS mm-hmm. on top of your arm moving all over the place, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. forward and back, then in the in the trail example, throw in the fact that now your arm is going to be sliding out a little bit every once in a while, right? Right. right. Because you're trying to keep balance. Um, and then tie to that, I'm turning left mm-hmm. and right. Mm-hmm. And I would venture to guess on a lot of trail runs, you do, you, you are turning more than 50% of the time. Yeah. And then add in now most trail runs have elevation changes. Mm-hmm. So now I've taken all this direction changing and I've thrown it into three space. Mm-hmm. And your your watch is receiving this data now, not just he's turning left and right, but now he or she's going up and down. Mm-hmm. And if if you if the watch just ignored if it doesn't have a road, let's go back to the Google Maps example. If it doesn't have a road to say you're somewhere on this road, if it gets one point at the beginning of the turn and one point at the end of the turn, it's going to draw a straight line between the two of those. Mm-hmm. And when you're on a trail, that's exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Your GPS cannot figure out where you just ran. That that trail is not in some database to the point where it knows accurately the trail goes around this tree, down through this ditch, and then... You know, that, that just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So inherently, the, the, the movement of the runner is going to impact your, your GPS distance and pace um, accuracy. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about like, I like think it's, oh, go ahead. Well, I just, and I was going back to the original thing. I think it's impacting it more than tree cover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. So I, I, you know, I think about like imagining my watch, you know, and go using that Google maps example and about how, how, you know, the, the car jumping from the, the exit back onto the road or, or from the road back onto the exit when it realizes it's got it wrong, right. you know? And I'm, I'm just imagining, mm-hmm. yeah. like, like, my Garmin watch when I'm running on a trail. Like, every second, it's realizing, oh, wait, he's not where I thought he was. Oh, wait, he's not where I thought he was. Oh, wait, he's not. It's constantly trying to figure out where I am, and it just has a hard time because on the trail, you're moving in so many unpredictable directions so often, right? Um, and and. Yeah. You compound that over the course of a two-hour run, a three-hour run, a four-hour run. It's going to be that's going to be a significant error by the time you get to the run, right, or to the end of the run. Right, and it goes back to what you said. It's amazing that it even gets a number that right. close. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. All right. So, so last question then. Last question. Um, so, so given all the things that we've discussed, and I know you've thought about this before. Given all the things we've discussed, given the fact that that you, as a runner, as you mentioned, came from an era when this was not something you were raised on, uh, given the fact that you coach and everything else like that, um, what advice would you and do you give your runners about using GPS when they're running? I'm going to answer that question in two parts, and okay. I've got sort of three three tips. Um, the first thing is like, like, why am I going to say these things? And it's the first reason why is the watch gives us more data, but not necessarily more information. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to have a respect for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of our, under, our, our understanding, uh, the ubiquitousness of GPS, it made us a bit lazy and it turned us into data slaves or uh, we, we are reliant upon this information that these tools are spitting out to us. We, we really, we believe it. We believe it's truth. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a, a grander understanding will give you more uh, empathy <laughs> for the system mm-hmm. sometimes, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and everybody has said this, I've got to get to five miles. And you look at your watch, it's 4.98. So you go run another point two to get to five miles. Yeah. You do a lot you know, around the parking it, lot. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that really necessary? Um, people get hooked into weekly mileage instead of quality time Mm -hmm. and and quality time is really essential. I think, and I know you're big into, I know sometimes you tell your runners to do no data runs or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's, we've lost that in a sense. And, um, the last one, and I call it chasing the village idiot. And the reason why I say this is you're out there trying to do something that somebody else is doing because it's out there and you end up being the village idiot because you're the one trying to do it, do what somebody else is doing. And my answer to that, whenever anybody asks me something about this, I go, when you see that guy blow up his hand on YouTube, do you say, Oh, that's a great idea. I want to go do that. You know, Hmm. so so like go back to the YouTube example. But so what I, what I've come from, what I've come to think about this is this, I I say like, remember GPS is a tool. So my, my number one, it's just a tool in your running toolbox. And, but but I think it's an essential tool, and I really believe in it. So that my first, you know, piece of advice: uh, paper logs are so 1990s. Um, <laughs> get on board with GPS, and understand its faults, but utilize it to track how far you run. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and 
you know, when you think back to the 1990s, we had a watch for time, we had a calculator for calculating, we had a day timer for calendaring, we had a camera for pictures, and we had a paper running log. Mm -hmm. Now, we have the capability to take all of that stuff and co-locate it into a single piece of technology. And why not? Mm -hmm. Today, 2020, I've got a phone and a watch. Mm -hmm. And of course, the charging cables. Um, But my phone is my running plan, my running log, and social connections. My watch gives me GPS and heart rate. It gives me zones. It gives me much more than that. And it enables me to create a live running log by simply pressing start and stop. You know, once you set up all the underlying stuff that it has to, to, to put the stuff into, and whether you're using Garmin Connect, Strava, Map My Run, or any other tool out there, you've got a log of what you did or you didn't do, and you can link that up with a plan that you've created, and now you have the very basics of a running program mm-hmm. just by using a GPS watch mm-hmm. and some tool. So going back to, like, paper logs or 1990s, get into the information age, understand the limitations of it, but those limitations are by and far outweighed by the benefits of being able to track how far you're running and then what type of running you're doing and then build a plan and then start, you know, tracking all of that. Mm -hmm. So that's my number one thing is just use it because it simplifies that problem. Mm -hmm. The, oh, and this goes back to something I think I heard on your show on another podcast, um, especially for like, this isn't just for runners that have been out there for a while, but for new runners, very few people wake up one day and say, I'd really love to be a runner. Most people have to get out and run and find that they love to run. Mm-hmm. And I think having something that's just dumping all of this inf- data and turning it into information for you and showing you your progress helps out that. Mm-hmm. I ran 10 miles last week and, oh man, I ran 20 miles last week and I ran 25 and I feel great. And then I think that starts to build that. And I'm all about building the community. I think it's a great tool for that. Mm-hmm. That's my number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number two, and I'm straying a little bit here, but GPS is typically linked to other tools. And I think if, if you get a GPS watch today, almost all of them will also give you heart rate. Mm-hmm. And if I was to throw out all the other technology and watches today, I think heart rate is an excellent and potentially an essential companion to GPS. Mm-hmm. Because whereas GPS is the satellite grouping telling you where you were and the thing trying to tell you where you're going or where you are, heart rate is truth. It's how hard you're working. And it, it's not linked to all these inaccuracies of GPS and all that. All of a sudden, it's measuring you. So instead of going out on a run and saying, I'm going too slow, or I didn't run too far, or I didn't run far enough, or she's faster than me, or I'm on pace for a five-minute mile, when you're not, you can say, this is really my heart rate. This is really how hard I'm running. And you can match that GPS data to what your heart rate is and figure out things like, oh, man, I really am sick, mm-hmm. or my load was really too high last week, and I need to back off because I, I can't do what I used to do comfortably. Mm-hmm. And just that tool that links to GPS, I think, is phenomenal and super helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Back in the day, we would run with our coaches, and they'd have us put our fingers on our wrists mm-hmm. at the end of a 800 <laughs> mm-hmm. and try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Now you can, you can really build that profile for yourself with that tech on your arm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the last one is this, and, and I titled this, you know, this, my tip is know when to ignore your $450 GPS watch. Mm-hmm. And I went, one of the things that you and Patrick talked about in your last podcast was, I think you said you had a friend who didn't like uh, cycle trainers and then they got a Peloton and now mm-hmm. you, you, the guy's always on the Peloton. Right. And as you're saying that, I said, of course, he spent $2,500 on this piece of technology and a subscription. He's going to use it, right? <laughs> so Fair point. Fair we point. buy this, yeah, we buy this 100 $150, $450. The, some watches are going for $1,000 with all this stuff. And you want to use it. You want to believe it. You want to listen to what it says. And when it says you're unproductive, you want to fix that. Mm-hmm. And, and I have fallen into this trap. And you've got to start respecting that as just a tool, a, a piece of data. It's not information. It's trying to give you information, but you've got to know when to ignore it because GPS is not a coach. Mm-hmm. GPS so far does not work well on a track. GPS mm-hmm. does not know how you feel, and it does not care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and GPS, GPS wants you to think it's perfect, and it's not. So, you know, when I look at my three essential texts for running, you need a watch that gives you time. You need heart rate, I think, because it links directly to your body. And you need GPS because it can track your stuff over time and help you to link how you feel with how fast you're running. Um, yeah. But when you go on the track, don't look at your GPS pace. Mm-hmm. Just do the math. Take your times and do the math. Mm-hmm. So. Right on. Those are Eric's three points for using GPS as a tool. Right on, right on. GPS is a tool, but understand its limitations. And then lots of uh, wrinkles from that one. Um, heart rate is, I think you make a good point about heart rate, that I think it's an important metric, and, and it's sort of been eclipsed. And um, and and we should keep in mind it's actually still a good metric. And, and like you said, it's a measure of you. Um, uh, it's, it, it's directly on you. Um, and then, of course, Simply know when to put that tool GPS aside. Know when to ignore it, even if you spend a thousand dollars on it. <laughs> Especially when you spend a thousand dollars on it. Right on, right on. So, well, Eric, but I love the fact. I, I want to give a, a shout out. I love the fact that these companies are so far out on the edge and doing these crazy things with their watches. The mm-hmm. track mode is awesome. Trail mode's great. Mm-hmm. I love these new techs like your body battery and you know your training status and all that just caution people that heart rate is truth mm-hmm. there's only so much information that watch is pulling off your body and just just know when to say yeah right i know on. how i feel this is this is what i'm trying to get done today right on right on on that note good luck in the southern tour ultra and uh thanks for coming on the most pleasant exhaustion podcast eric hall no problem, George. Anytime. I loved it. All right, buddy. Uh, good luck, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you more soon. All right. Thanks, George. That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slayer X. Don't forget to reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. We're on Instagram now, at Most Pleasant Exhaustion. And you can download us on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify. 
Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. ITL Coaching and Performance can be found at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. Blue Pineapple Travel can be found at bluepineappletravel.com, at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, or on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And SlayerX can be found at SlayerX.com, at Facebook.com slash here for SlayerX. That's the number four, here for SlayerX. On Twitter, at official SlayerX. And on Instagram, here for SlayerX. Don't forget to use the pleasant 2019 discount code for 10% off anything at their website. On behalf of Michelle Frank and Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We appreciate your listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.